Hello, and welcome to Dodecahedron, a podcast by, for, and about role players. I'm Jess Vetters. And I'm Amy Jocelyn. Every week we get together to talk about a range of gaming-related topics, from creating a character to running a game, and what it all means for people who share our favorite hobby. We may not be experts, but we do have pleasant voices and a wealth of gaming experience that we're eager to share with you. Our topic today is introductions, but before we get into it, Amy, how have you been? I'm good. Been a while since we've had you on the show. Yeah, I've started a new business. Oh? Yeah, for freelance editing. So uh, if anyone has editing needs for their fantasy or science fiction novels, you can send them my way. You want to you wanna plug where they would send that right at the top here? Uh, yeah, you can email me, um, I guess just at amyjocelyn at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. I don't have a business website set up, but I'll get back to you the next time. Okay. We look forward to it. Cool. The royal we that is me sitting right here right now. <laughs> the royal we is always pleasant. So that was, I would say, a an interesting way to introduce the idea of a new business. Yeah. But if you were putting it into, say, a story or a game, how might you punch that introduction up? Let's see. I think I would introduce it slowly, maybe have a sign on a building storefront bearing the name of this uh, business. Okay. And also maybe have some NPCs talking about it if I really wanted to push my player characters towards it, you know, get that seed going. Absolutely. And then I think I might even, uh, if they weren't getting the hint, uh, stage some kind of scene in there, like they need to go to this store or, you know, in order to kick off a quest or get something done, you have to talk to the proprietor. Excellent. So yeah, that's basically what we're talking about today, is if you've got a place or a character or a plot point or anything, and you are trying to show it to your players without really beating them over the head with it, how do you effectively introduce something not just in a role-playing game, but in any sort of story. And I think what you started off with there, like the first thing you said was introduce it kind of slowly. Yeah. Maybe with a sign at first. I think there is a lot of truth to that. Because so often our instinct, I, I know mine is, because I am one of those... I'm not a planner when it comes to my writing, but when it comes to running a game where I'm not in total control of the story, I plan everything. So I have a really bad habit of just throwing chunks of introductory material at players all of the time. So it's like, okay, you walk into this town, you see this thing, that thing, this the other thing, this place, these people, and this flying goat man who occasionally drops apples on top of people's heads. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, there was too much to focus on there. What's with the goat man? Oh, don't worry about it. You don't need to know about him yet. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Getting that balance is really tricky. And I've been uh, reading a lot, obviously, to prepare for editing, you know, reading a lot on how introductions are a really integral part of stories, but you need to really cast that balance mm -hmm. so that you're not overwhelming your readers or your players and you're kind of easing them into it. So all of the details, you know, of the world or of the character you're just introducing or whatever it is, kind of seep into them slowly. It gives them a chance to absorb it without hitting them over the head. 
And then it's kind of almost like a subconscious thing. They'll recall it when they need it. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's really tricky. It's right. really hard. And a lot of that has to do with not giving away too much too soon. Striking a balance. Yeah. So if you are... Let's, let's run into a hypothetical here. Yeah, let's do it. Throw out a genre. Because, like, really when it comes down to it, the way that you're going to introduce certain things will be affected pretty greatly by the conventions of the story that you're telling in the first place. It's true. Like, you would not introduce a noir antagonist in the same way that you would introduce a high fantasy antagonist. Oh, no, definitely not. Unless your high fantasy was noir-related in this one instance. Which would be dope. It would be. It would be pretty cool. But I keep thinking romantic comedy. Like okay. When you have your romantic comedy leads, usually it's kind of fumbling and bumbling and like all at once. You know, you, first you'll get, and, and this is like in movies or, you know, what have you, you'll get, here's the main character. Mm-hmm. Here is her family or here, I'm using her. That's uh, fine. Here is, you know, the situation where she's kind of downtrodden and you get to see a little bit where like she's the underdog, where she just doesn't quite get everything that she wants. And then, you know, pretty soon, like maybe... A quarter of the way into the story, up oh, there's the hunky male lead, and you already know that she's going to end up with him. Of course. But the way that they introduce him is also very important because that sets up the dynamic mm-hmm. between the two main characters. You know, do they have a chemistry right away? Do they dislike each other? Is it like Pride and Prejudice? You know, is there a slow <laughs> understanding of how, you know, they get to know each other? I gotta say, this is not like. Not super related to the topic at hand, but the whole Pride and Prejudice, like, oh, they're butting heads, which means they really love each other, is a trope <laughs> that I just cannot stand. It's a pretty bad trope. It sends a lot of poor messages. <laughs> it really does. But there are ways to make that work. And I think one of the most interesting things to do about it is... Uh, Like Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes, let's talk about that. You have Zuko, who is introduced in episode one as this kid who... He's petulant, and he's obsessive, and he's not rude exactly, but he's... He's angry. Yes. He's just very angry. He's angry, and he doesn't really want to deal with anybody else's point of view, because he thinks everything that he's doing is what he needs to do. You get... From this moment of introduction, this character who is extremely driven to well, to the point of self-destruction. Yeah. And you contrast that with the way that uh, two of the other like five main characters, Katara and Sokka, are introduced. Where it's this brother-sister sort of bickering, but I love you dynamic. And the first thing we see Katara doing is waterbending. The magic yes. where she's like using her manipulation of the water that they're floating on to pull a fish up into the air. Mm-hmm. And then it goes wrong and she drops it on Sokka's head. It's every it's so so beautifully encapsulated everything that they're introducing there. They're introducing the magic. Mm-hmm. They're introducing Katara and her pitfalls, like her shortcomings in this magic. They were also seeing the dynamic that the two siblings have with each other, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a very sibling relationship oh yeah and they're also kind of you're getting introduced to the world too because here they are they're in the pole it's cold icy everywhere you know and you also get to see a little more of their culture and that stuff isn't as you know important to this 
scene as just their relationship and this magic. Right. It's the aesthetic, for lack of a better term. Yes, but it's it's there. It's there. So it it flows very naturally when they return to town and you get to see everything else. Like it's never jarring because you're not just suddenly dropped into this thing that wasn't introduced before. Right. It's always been there. And that's that's the grace of a great introduction. There's nothing that comes out of you kind of from nowhere because mm-hmm. it's always been there. Well, and I think that one of the best things that that particular show does is it introduces us to Katara and Sokka in isolation. We don't see them walking through the middle of a bustling city. Like in uh, Star Wars A New Hope, that's episode four, the first time we see anything, it is the little uh, Corellian cruiser being chased by the giant Star Destroyer. Mm. So, like, we see this wall of text go by that's saying, like, oh, there's a rebellion against the evil empire, and blah, blah, blah. But the first visual we get is little ship running away from enormous ship (laughs) against this black background. And it immediately sets up this idea of, okay, these are the two most important elements in the story at this point. Yeah. You see the same thing with Katara and Sokka, where big, vast ocean with ice flows, and they're in this little canoe, and it's just a brother and a sister having a little, like, completely inane argument, and then she starts doing magic. Yeah. These are the most important things in this story at this point. Yeah. That is something that when we are introducing elements... We need to keep in mind. Yes. Why is this thing you are bringing in the most important thing in the story at this point? Yes. And if it's not, don't bring it in yet. Exactly. Don't bring it in yet. That doesn't mean forget it. It just means it's not time for it yet. Mm -hmm. And that's, if we veer off a little bit into exposition, like we were talking about Star Wars A New Hope, where you have the scrolling words and it tells you basically here's a brief history of what's happened up to this point and now you're going to continue it from here with the movie yes. and that's what we do when you know when we're dming or gming depending on you know what game you're playing yeah you have this opportunity to introduce the world and a little of the backstory to your player characters but you just focus on what they need to know right at this moment Don't say any more than that, but Mm -hmm. give them a sense of what they're getting themselves into. Give them something that's going to excite them and then leave the rest of it to the storytelling. Exactly. And I think that's one of the pitfalls that we can run into with pre-made settings where some people will have differing experiences with knowledge of the setting. Hmm. Uh, Like one of the Monday night games that I'm always talking about, I've mentioned before that it takes place in the world of Eberron. I have read up as much as I can stomach on Eberron, and that's not to say that the setting is uninteresting or that I don't like it, although I kind of don't. (laughs) Um, But it's mostly the way that the material is written is very textbook. It's, It's a world Bible. Yes. Which makes it difficult for me to find the points where okay, this is what I care about as my character, and this is what I care about as a reader. So throughout the game, and this is to no fault of my DM who's running it, there have been numerous times where elements are mentioned or kind of glossed over because the assumption is, all right, everybody is at least passingly familiar with this part of this world. Hmm. And I know 
Yeah, I read that, but I completely forgot it because it was not given to me in a way that I cared about, and now I'm supposed to care. Yeah, that is tough. It's like attaching feelings to something that's dry, like a, like a history book. Yes, exactly. And, you know, if it's detached from you and there's nothing inherent about it that you should care about, then there's very little incentive to do so. But that's something that, you know, DMs could do is, you know, give throw their players a bone, you know. Sure, have them research and read up on the world that they're mm-hmm. playing in. But when you're introducing it, introduce it in a way that you know they're going to care about. Exactly. I think it, we run into this a little bit less when it's something like, you know, this is an expanded universe Star Wars game. Hmm. Because you are more encouraged with something that vast to kind of just make up your own stuff. Yes. Like, if you want to say, okay, here's our game on Tatooine. If you're going by the movies, we've seen, like, two places in Tatooine. Yeah. There's a whole rest of a planet you could deal with. And if you want to do the Mos Eisley Cantina, don't, but you can. (laughs) But I think that kind of, and like this is me veering off topic again a little bit, (laughs) but that touches on my, not exactly disdain, but my less than positive feelings about fan fiction. Hmm. I don't like playing in other people's settings. Because I don't like being constrained to their canon. See, I'm going to have to uh, take the counter opinion Please on that. Do. Because I have written fan fiction myself. Mm-hmm. And it's something I very much enjoy. Especially, you know, if you love a universe and you want to give your own unique touch to it. Mm-hmm. It's like your invitation to add something new. So, you know, if we were to take Star Wars and we were to write fan fiction and on ta- Tatooine... And I wanted to do the Moss Eisley Cantina, but when it first opened. That's something that I could totally explore. I'm taking something that's familiar, that I already know fairly well, and that readers are going to recognize, and yet I can put my own spin on it and make it, you know, this is the troubles it had in its first few days, you know, this time when it almost got shut down for reasons that I can go into in my story. And you just have this opportunity to not have to make up everything yourself, So if you're not a world builder, I love world building, but sometimes it's just nice to focus more on different elements of the story. That's true. I mean, I I come at that from a very, like, elitist world building (laughs) sort of stance, and I will be the first to admit that. And also, it's just, there is something that's really powerful about working with constraints and limitations. Sometimes I find my stories flourish the best when I am not allowed to extend myself outside of a rigid box which hmm. means that i can make other shapes any shape that i want that still fits inside that box and sometimes the art that comes out of it is even more beautiful than if i were to just have anything in the world that i could do interesting and i think i i wrote crossover fan fiction so i did star wars and harry potter fan fiction and that was really fun because you get to blend you know, the worlds where the lines kind of blur Mm -hmm. and you get to take your favorite parts of each and put them together and just kind of see what comes up. And there's a magic to the amalgamation that you can form when that happens. I will say the, the place where I don't mind. And when I say this, I say it as someone who doesn't read, but still very much appreciates fan fiction. Mm -hmm. The place where I don't mind 
working with someone else's setting is when I can completely step outside of what they've established, hmm. but still like use their rules. Yeah, like their conventions. Yeah. Like, I, I think the Force is a fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of really interesting things can be done with it. I think the... The magic system in Harry Potter is something that I would like to explore and fix. <laughs> because when it comes down to it, it's super weird. It's soft magic. Oh, it's very soft. But it's soft that pretends it's hard because yeah. it's in a school setting and you have to have all of the rules that the kids can learn. Yes, but we never know those those rules. <laughs> I mean, we kind of do. We know, like, all right, if you're going to cast Wingardium Leviosa, you need to say it in a certain way and swish and flick the wand in a certain way. But then also, oops, no, you don't all the time, not necessarily. <laughs> and it's like, if you're learning physics, you don't go into it thinking, all right, yeah, this is the way that drag coefficients work except for when it's not <laughs> although there is some truth to that because physics yes there are always just so many variables but man i've gotten way off topic yeah keep going you want to finish that thought no okay let's segue then let's segue <clears throat> to how i feel like sometimes when i am a player in someone else's campaign i feel like i am painting fan fiction all over it and that, I think, is an interesting way to look at collaborative storytelling. It's interesting. And I feel like I try to do introductions of my own, bringing this way back to our topic at hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like to introduce elements of the story that I want to play in mm -hmm. the way that I feel comfortable bringing it up. So one of the ways is uh, in my game, that uh, the game that we were playing with you, Jess, uh, in... Uh, Way back it's been when? a while, but I, one of my character's traits, flaws, I don't know what you would call it. I don't remember what I put it as, was uh, love at first sight. Yes. That was my character's kind of thing. Like I was just really wanting love. And so I was kind of forcing Jess to introduce characters to me in a way that shifted the perspective a bit because I was like, okay, uh, was it love at first sight? And that made Jess reconsider this NPC or monster, because, you know, no discrimination, that he was bringing up and see him as a potential romantic interest for my character. Mm -hmm. Which was a lot of fun as sort of like a, just a, an interesting little challenge for me, because suddenly I'm not just thinking about the utility of this NPC or this character or this enemy, but I am also thinking about their personality and their level of relative attractiveness and all sorts of weird things that I wouldn't necessarily have put onto these particular characters to begin with. Sometimes I absolutely would think about all of that stuff. Like, in one of the very early sessions, I had it so that the guy behind everything was the slightly aged mayor who was like mm. trying to i can't even remember his exact motivation but it was something to do with his granddaughters yeah something they were eight i remember that yes <laughs> eight and twins <laughs> but you pulled that question on me 
with him. Yep. And I was like, <laughs> well, he's 80 and evil, so... Well, actually, maybe. <laughs> and yeah. like, it, it just made me think about the way that I was like giving you these characters in a very in a much more in-depth way than I had planned to. Yeah. And, like, I will say, part of the constraint with that is I was running games for four to six people in a rotating cast, and they were all one-shots. Yep. yep. So the, it was the sort of thing where if it had been, like, you and me and two other regulars in an extended campaign, then it would have been much easier to say, all right, Every NPC that I introduce, <laughs> I will give, like, the flowery description of the first impression you get from them, and how their hair flows in the breeze, or how the sun glints off of the bald head, or how <laughs> the water reflects lovelyly onto the scales of their skin. <laughs> lovelyly. That lovelyly. Was an, that was an interesting word yes, to was. use. Many syllables. Uh, but... One of the things that I had to deal with was the time constraint of knowing, okay, I've got people who have work in the morning, yeah, and I can't keep them here past midnight. That no. would be ridiculous. And so you, the introductions you gave us were purely the aesthetics and the, you know, real bits that we needed to know. I tried to keep it very functional. Functional is good. And, and I think, you know, those flowery descriptions, even if it was for, you know, me and a group of regulars, wouldn't make much difference if we were just out to fleece the person, you know, just mm -hmm. because it, and that's, and that comes down to the perspective, you know, my character was looking for love. And so my character saw potential love in every NPC that we crossed. I think the best one was this talking dog, Mr. Wiffles, maybe. Um... What's his name? I can't, I never remember. It was Mr. Something. He was great. He should be named Mr. Whiskers. No, that's already a, that's a character in a Disney cartoon. Oh, I never saw it. Well, you know, character names are important, and this one just never stuck in my head. <laughs> I think that speaks more to the quality of the name in the first place. <laughs> Mr. Porridge. Oh, it was Mr. Porridge. Yeah. Yes. I think because I never saw him eating oatmeal or anything. Because he was a dog. Yes. It probably would have killed him. No, dogs can eat oatmeal. Okay, good. They can't have chocolate or poinsettia leaves. Right. Anyways. So just don't make it poinsettia oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, no point, no poinsettia and chocolate oatmeal for, for Mr. Porridge. <laughs> what a shame. Um, yeah, but if, if I had been just a thief looking to fleece them, I would be more interested in how uh, clumsily they had tied their shoes mm -hmm. so I could step on their boots and then take things out of their pockets. Or uh, if I was um, mostly, if I was a bard and just trying to find the way that I could, I don't know, charm them with a song, like I would pay more attention to the kind of things they'd be interested in. Right. Well, I mean, with something like that, you, if I could give a personalized introduction of every character to every player, then it's like, for one person, I mention the accents in their clothing that indicate they may they may hail from a particular region. Hmm. For another, it's like the weightiness of their coin purse. For one, it's the warrior's stance subtly hidden, or like the blade that is poorly concealed underneath <laughs> their coat. Like if if we had a perfect world where I had all of the time 
to give all of the descriptions to all of the people, I could give two or three interesting tidbits. Like, the first thing that you notice about this character. And I think in certain circumstances, we can do that as GMs. Yeah. Because there are times when you will meet a character where it's very important that every player gets a unique interpretation of who they are. And then there are times when, all right, you're in the apothecary's workshop and there's a bunch of potions scattered about and empty bottles and Erlenmeyer flasks and the apothecary herself has wild frizzy gray hair and a large scar over her eye that looks Hmm. like it came from a burn. And it's like, okay, that's everything in general that you need to know about this character to know that she is unkempt and a little unstable and is working with something dangerous. Yeah, definitely. You may not need to go into more detail than that unless players ask for it. Or if they try to talk to her. Of course. Yeah. But it's assumed, like, if you're in there, some transactional thing or... Well, the transaction could be murder, we never know, is going to happen. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so because we do live in this real world where we are pressed for time, Mm -hmm. especially when we have a lot of players who maybe are unfamiliar with the game that we're playing or the campaign or something. Which happens fairly regularly, especially in this day and age of, hey, D&D is cool again. (laughs) What then, Jess, as a GM, would you suggest are some really good points to hit with most of the characters that you introduce. If you're introducing characters, you need to think about the function that they'll have in the story. And this can be something as simple as, well, this is the shopkeeper. That's who you buy your provisions from. Okay, I don't have to spend a lot of time describing the shopkeeper. No. But if it is the barmaid who is supposed to give the the PCs their great quest... Hmm and also maybe supposed to be a regular point of contact, then go into a little bit of description saying like, all right, physically, this is how this person takes up space. Uh, Maybe talk a bit about age or how bedraggled or put together they may look. Talk about the way they carry themselves. Something that gives you a sense of, is this person capable on their own Or are they coming to you because they can't do whatever they need you to do? Yeah. If you are introducing a a villain, an antagonist of any stripe, Mm -hmm. then you need to talk about mm, then you need to talk about anything about them that may be considered intimidating. Are they particularly tall or short? Are they physically taking up more or less space than you? And if The answer is less. Is there an arcane mystery that swirls about them? Descriptions that give you a sense of how important or how dangerous or how seriously do we need to take this person. Mm, Yeah. And then if you're introducing, say, a talking dog. (laughs) For me personally, when I'm introducing a character that is kind of for fun but still serves a purpose, I'm not going to talk about something like, all right, Mr. Porridge is this particular breed of dog, because that doesn't matter. No. I want Mr. Porridge in your mind 
to be the ideal Mr. Porridge. So what I will talk about is the sense of justice you get from the talking (laughs) dog. The sense of, man, this dog would do anything for his friends. And like, as an introduction, that's really abstract. And it might not give all of your players a good sense of what exactly it is they're dealing with. But it should give them a sense of the personality behind the character. Hmm. So they know kind of how to interact with him. Yeah. I think that's great. I think appearances do matter a little less in D&D. Rather than like, you know, the sense, like the aura you get off of them. And the ways you can interact with them. And that other print information that you were talking about. And I think if you're writing prose and you have all the time in the world to tell your reader everything that you want them to know about a character, then knowing what does this person look like gives your reader a better sense in their head of, okay, this is what I picture when it's their scenes. But in a role-playing game where you're sitting around the table or you're talking over Discord or whatever... It doesn't so much, or rather, it is not so relevant what they look like as long as you understand, like, what they are. Yeah. Now, places are a little bit different. Yes, places are different. Because describing the appearance of a place tells you a lot about the, not just the physical aesthetic, but the story aesthetic. Mm Mm-hmm. So... When you were talking about introducing a business before and you started off with a sign, it matters quite a lot if that's a faded painting on a wooden slat or if it is a buzzing neon sign hanging over a dark alley. Yeah. These things tell us more than... I think they, I think they tell us more than we think they do. They serve multiple purposes. Because when you take just the look of a sign, not only are you telling the player how it would look if they were there themselves, Mm -hmm. which helps anchor them to that location, but it also gives you a sense of the intention behind that sign. You know, it gives you a sense of age. It tells you how well cared for this thing is, like how loved it is or how abandoned. Mm -hmm. It, It tells you a lot. And it is. It's more than we think upon first glance. You know, you hear, here is this rickety sign. It's, you know, on a lopsided building and one of the hinges on the sign has come off. So the sign is also crooked and it's eroded a bit. So you can kind of read half of what the sign's like front says. And then when you look through the windows, everything is brightly lit and sparklingly new. And that gives you, you know, there's there's just like a juxtaposition that you can insert with there. Absolutely. Which would give you kind of a mystery of like, what is this? Is the sign a relic from something else? Like, there's questions. And that's what a good introduction should do, is it should provide you with answers and questions at the same time. Yes. Yes. Definitely yes. That's exactly it. I've been thinking the entire time we've been talking, trying to figure out like, all right, what is the... What's the kernel to walk away from with this? And I think that's it. 
you're, when you introduce something, you are answering the question, what am I looking at and what am I dealing with? Yep. But you should also raise the questions of what does that mean? Mm. Why is this here? Yeah. Why is this important to me? Yes. Yeah. If you give your, if you give your readers, if you're writing prose or if you give your players, if you're, you know, GMing a game, give them a hook. Tell them what it is they're looking at, but make them want to know more. Mm -hmm. Because that's going to be the difference between having to guide your players towards what you want them to focus on and have them immediately focusing on it themselves. Right. Because your players are smart. They're all smart people, and they're going to pick up on the cues that you give them. You just need to make sure that you're giving them the right cues. Yeah, in my experience, people who don't like storytelling at least a little bit, don't play these games. Hmm. So everybody sitting around your table is there, even if they are like the most uh, narrow-minded, not narrow-minded, um, what, there's a, there's a phrase for focused on just one thing. Tunnel vision? Sure. <laughs> even if they're the most tunnel vision combat <laughs> monsters... They are still there because this experience gives them something that they can't get hmm. in other games. Yeah. Because otherwise, just go and play, I don't know, Skyrim for the 700th hour. <laughs> but we come to role-playing games because we want these questions. We want interesting problems raised for us to solve. Yes. And I think the way that we introduce things... And if you're a player and you are having something introduced to you and you're not taking away everything that you feel like you should, voice those questions. Yes. Ask for more information because there is a chance that the GM thinks you got it when maybe their description wasn't apt enough or maybe they didn't give you the right kind of cues. Or maybe you were so subtle that they just didn't pick up on it. Yeah, subtlety can be a problem. Your subtlety has to be pretty overt, <laughs> I think, sometimes. This is the thing, because we were just talking about how smart role players tend to be, but at the same time, that backfires, where players so often will focus on, like, the NPC that you mentioned was in the bathroom during the bank heist and they're like ah yes bathroom npc must be the most important character here otherwise why would they be mentioned and the gm sitting there like that dude doesn't even have a name they're totally unrelated i was just making a poop joke <laughs> yeah but that's the thing too because that's a really interesting hook you know mm -hmm. there's a bank heist going on and someone is stuck in the bathroom and you just I don't know, I am immediately put into the mind of, oh gosh, what can that person hear right now? Does oh, yeah. he hear there's a bank heist going on? Is he completely oblivious? Is he the person who's behind it all? Like, there there are so many questions. And so just knowing, I guess, you know, if, if your players do latch on to NPCs or little details that you didn't intend to stick out, like, reflect back why. Like, mm. how did you introduce them in such a way that your players were so intrigued? Because you can learn from that. Well, my regular co-host, Colin, would, and like, I can hear it in his voice. He would say, use that. 
that. <laughs> if your players have latched on to something that you didn't intend, make it a part of the story. Which, if you are a brilliant improviser and you can completely revamp all of your plans in the five-minute quote-unquote bathroom break that you take to go and scramble and look at your notes and figure out, like, okay, how do I make all of this work? <laughs> sure, use that. Because obviously it tickled your players in a way that they want to pursue. Yeah. But also, if you're not that person, mm -hmm. there is no shame in telling your players, um, um, no, I was literally just, I, I, I just wanted somebody to be in the bathroom. Yeah. That guy's, that guy's completely irrelevant. You, I mean, if they go to like, you know, pursue that line of questioning and they go to the guy in the bathroom, he could just be like, listen, I was just taking a poop. I was here at the wrong time in the wrong place. Like, I wish I hadn't been here. And like, that can just be it. Yeah. You know, he could even run away from questions. Like, please stop bothering me. This was the most embarrassing day of my life. <laughs> You're giving me shy bladder now. Like, I really just need to go. Please leave. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that they're interrogating him while he's still in the bathroom. Of course. It's a bank heist. Why would he come out? <laughs> he might even think they're the ones behind the bank heist. <laughs> I just kind of figured, you know, you question him after everything is said and done, but no, no. in the middle of in the, the heist. In the middle of the heist, you just go and talk. Because if he is the one who's behind it, you want to stop it right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, another thing, though, that you could do is mm -hmm. you could uh, make shells of characters. And by that, I mean, you know, have a couple different hooks and, like, you know, different introductions that are just very slight. Like, there's a guy in the bathroom. There's a guy up in the control room. There's a guy who's peeking through the window. And then whichever one your characters latch onto, you can just have one single character description. Yes. And it can go to that one person that they have latched onto. So... They really like the person who's in the bathroom as compared to the one who's staring in through the window. Great. That can be the guy that you planned everything out for. That's the guy. Vice versa. That's the guy. Yes. And that is something that I think every GM has experienced something along those lines where it's like, okay, I've got my three different options and whichever door you choose, that's the right door. Because only... Only a crazy person would plan out what's behind all three doors and every converging and diverging path that goes along with that and would spend 16 hours writing 100 pages in a notebook for plans of things that will never happen. Only only a fool. <laughs> That's why you recycle your material. But yes! also, also, you can pull another Avatar The Last Airbender and have all three different shells... Just be the same character. If they go up to more than one, it's the same person. Like, you could just totally do that. Yeah. There, I think his name is Shu, and he pretends to be his brother with all of these other things. It's the same oh, person. God. I was like, okay, which episode are you referring it's to? The but one, yep, it's he's that the one. fish seller, and then he also does something else. And then he does something else. Like, he just changes his hat. That and must like, have been my brother. Foo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you could totally do that. And that just gives, like, you know, especially if, you're, if your campaign needs some more frivolity or it's more fun, you know, just mm -hmm. in general. Like, that's totally something that's an inside joke now for you and all of your players. Yes, yeah, don't be afraid to introduce levity yes. into your games. Ridiculousness is always nice, especially contrasting some of the heavier battles and like the sadder scenes that you might get into. Oh yeah. It's a fun noise out the window. Ah, uh, on that note, 
we're we're running up to time. Yeah. So, Amy. Yes. Is there anything you would like to plug before we go? I know last time you briefly mentioned your Twitch channel. Yes. I'm still streaming four days a week. Come check me out at twitch.tv slash jaspelior. We all love jazz. It's all good stuff. Uh, occasionally I stream along with you on that. Yes. And that's fun times. It's super fun. That's generally on Sundays. Generally. That's when I can be guaranteed to have some time. <laughs> so, if you have any introductions you would like to make to us, any ideas you would like to send our way, you can do that by sending us an email at dodecapodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us a message on Instagram or Tumblr or Facebook. All of those are also dodecapodcast or at dodecapodcast, depending on the format. And if you want to tweet at us, that's the weird one. It's at podcast dodeca. Depending on what platform you're listening to this on, there are other platforms you can listen to it on, too. We're on iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts and Podbean. And I haven't figured out how to get us onto Breaker yet, but I'm working on that. If anybody knows how that works, please email me. And... yeah. Yeah. So from all of us here at Dodecahedron, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you on our next adventure.